When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we talk with actors, artists, and creators about their work, career, and current obsession. I'm your host, Patrick Holland, and today I have two guests. The first is the Academy Award-winning writer and director, Adam McKay. He's behind such films as The Big Short, Anchorman, Vice, and Step Brothers. The other is Dr. Amy Mainzer, who is an astronomer, professor, and the principal investigator of NASA's Near-Earth Object Widefield Infrared Survey Explorer also called Neowise. Adam's new film is Don't Look Up, which Amy was the science advisor on. The film follows two astronomers, played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, who discover that a comet is headed straight for the Earth and will destroy it in six months. The cast includes Jonah Hill, Meryl Streep, Rob Morgan, Kate Blanchett, Tyler Perry, Ariana Grande, Timothy Chalamet, among others. Take a listen to part of the trailer. We discovered a very large comet. Oh, good for you. It's headed directly towards Earth. This comet is what we call a planet killer. At this exact moment, I say we sit tight and assess. Sit tight and assess? Sit tight. And then assess. The sit tight part comes first, then you gotta digest it. That's the assessment period. Our guests today have made a pretty big discovery in space. How big is this thing going? I can't destroy my ex-wife's house. Is that possible? <laughs> There's a 100% chance that we're all going to die. Hey. Hey. Well, the handsome astronomer can come back anytime, but the yelling lady, mm, not, so not so much. You see it? I can't. My head is in a bag. I did have the FBI put that bag over your head. They don't do that. The CIA does, but I made them do it. You know, I had a feeling. It's a good feeling, because that is what I did, and it was very funny and cool. Let's just start right at the top with the film. So Don't Look Up is about uh, two astronomers who discovered that there's going to be a comet that's on track to destroy planet Earth, and they end up going on a media tour. I think that's a fair way to say the setup. <laughs> that is kind of a perfect summary of what the movie is. Okay, cool. Because there's a lot I don't want to give away. But uh, Adam, I'll start with you. Where did the idea for this film come from? It came from around 2018. I think that IPCC report came out about the climate. And uh, I was already clocking the climate crisis for years before and very concerned about it. But that was the one that put the hair up on the back of my neck. I think that was the one, if I'm getting my time right. And I realized, oh, I have to do a movie. How do you do a movie about a subject like this? And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a journalist, David Sirota, and both of us were commiserating, like, why doesn't the media cover this? Why is this like the fifth story or a little headline or it's kind of mentioned as like an issue? And he said, yeah, it's like a, an asteroid's going to hit the planet and no one cares. And I was like, that's it. And he was like, what do you mean that's it? I was like, that's the movie. 
and uh and, and and it really that really was it and Sirota's credited story by with me and he's also a co-producer on it he gave me notes all along the uh the process but i was looking for an idea that was big had a nice uh easy point of entry but also i loved that it was funny i i loved that it had a playfulness uh, to it and yet at the same time could have other emotions as well yeah, I have to say it's very funny and slightly almost too much on the nose. And you, you said you started this uh, in 2018, so clearly before the pandemic, but you can't help but draw the parallels between a life, uh, a life-threatening event that that's threatening all of all of the world uh, with something like a comet, but also something like the pandemic. Uh, how much did that factor into it, or is it just like, wow, uh, I, I'm good at writing, and I just predicted that. Uh... I, I always say it's like you're watching a stack of champagne glasses and someone leans against it. It's not that hard to predict what's going to happen. And clearly someone's been leaning against the stack of uh, champagne glasses for quite a while here in the States. So uh, it, it was really one forewarning of a horrible planetary catastrophe uh, colliding with a, another one. Um, yeah, we were scouting the movie in Boston and it was already written. And all of a sudden, the, uh, you guys remember the day they shut down that NBA game, the Utah Jazz. I mean, maybe Amy as a scientist was a little more ahead of the curve than, than I was, but that was the moment. And I went home for five or six months and just watched basically 60% of the movie come true. It was uh, very strange. The only change I had to make was I had to make the script a little crazier because reality had in fact played out about 15, 20% uh, more bonkers than the already crazy script I had written. Amy, how did you get involved with this and how did you and Adam first meet? Well, it's funny because I uh, first spoke with you, Adam, I think it was around, it was still 2019, if I'm not mistaken. It was somewhere around the, the, the new year, just before the pandemic hit. And I read the script and I thought, you know, okay, well, uh, I, there's no way people wouldn't believe in a comet. <laughs> oh my gosh and then you know it's funny because so so i work on asteroids and comets but i also have a line of research in in some climate studies and and um you know just a, a lot of my friends and, and family work on climate change also uh so we have these discussions at home a lot we have a very apocalyptic household i would say so we watch a lot of comedies and you know, kind of, what is the difference in how people react to these these different kinds of topics? In some ways, you would think that there's no way people would deny the existence of something that's so well supported by the evidence, and yet people do. So when I first spoke to Adam about this, um, you know, I thought, oh no, you know, people are going to believe in the comet, and then of course everything unfolded, as it did. And I remember we had a lot of conversations, and I, I think I remember we said. I, I told you at one point, you know what? You got to make it crazier. <laughs> yeah. More, more over the top because uh, the science denialism that we're seeing playing out right now is, uh, has had a devastating effect in the pandemic. It's, it's really horrifying to watch as a scientist. Well, it's not something that just started in the pandemic either. And I think that's, um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, education and advocacy at just a moment here, but going back to the extra bonker stuff, like what are, can you give me an example of, something you had to add to make it more bonkers? Do you remember, Amy? I mean, there was a lot of little lines where, and the comet denialism increased 
And there was a certain characters that maybe were a little drier, became a little more extreme, like Meryl Streep's character. What, what else do you remember? I'm trying to think of what we heightened. Oh, oh, I remember the shovels, adding the shovels. Yes, 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 you're, <laughs> you're right. I mean, I remember reading that as the toilet paper, the great toilet paper crisis of 2020 unfolded. It was just like, yeah, shovels, absolutely. There's going to be a shovel shortage because of course yep. people think they can, you know, dig tunnels and somehow that's going to protect you from a, a, a comet that's going to, you know, rip off a good chunk of, uh, of the ground. I mean, no, that, that for me, as we lived through that, we just sort of like, well, of course, of course, there's going to be shovel shortages. Absolutely. Okay. Well, and I, I love the spin also bringing in like, uh, I mean, as someone who covers Silicon Valley and big tech, bringing in the bash phone, which Mark Rylance is so brilliant in that character. And it's so spot on, but that would be a solution. And then there's a moment where Kate's parents are like, your, your dad and I are, uh, we are, we're for the jobs the comment will provide. So the fact that we we stop saving earth to make jobs and and get get rich is is so ridiculous and yet part of me is like it's not that ridiculous well amy you remember this so amy reads the script before the pandemic and i'm like yeah it's pretty crazy we know we're trying to show it and she said she told me she said you know there are companies that want to mine comets and asteroids and i was like no there aren't and she's like Oh yeah, there are. Yeah, there, there, are, there are companies that have come and gone over many years now that have tried to mine asteroids and comets or that have proposed to do this. Of course, it's incredibly hard. <laughs> I mean, you know, we have, we have two sample return missions that the world has conducted that have brought back pieces of asteroids and comets. One of them is on its way back now. That's the OSIRIS-REx mission from NASA. But one has already come back and that's JAXA's mission that went to an asteroid. These are, these are missions that grabbed kind of like this much material. We're talking like between a baseball and a coffee can. Osiris Rex is a billion dollars, right? I mean, in other words, this is really, really hard. <laughs> so, but, but the point is people have been talking about this stuff for years and years and years. And, and that was where I knew like, when it comes to greed, anything you can imagine will exist. Like a, a corduroy llama. If greed were connected to it, a corduroy llama would exist. Like you could think of the craziest stuff because I really did with that. I thought, well, this is a crazy turn off to be careful with how I shoot it and play it. And Amy's like, nope, it exists. Well, I want to ask you about that. Like with the tone of it, um, I mean, I'm a huge fan of your films. I remember, still remember seeing Anchorman right after seeing Spider-Man 2 and going back in to see one of those films a second time and that was Anchorman. Um, but through all <laughs> the work you've done, I mean, how do you strike that balance with tone where you, you want to make it believable, but you also want it to be funny and also a little bit like, yeah, we got to do something as a society, guys. This is, this is not good. I mean, that was the whole trick of this entire movie was the tone, because once you have the actual president of the United States, regardless of who you voted for, float the idea of ingesting bleach during a nationally televised press conference, you're kind of past Talladega Nights. You're, you're really closer to Step Brothers at that point, and that's actual reality. So... It was a very tricky dance. And, and that's why Amy was so instrumental was because we wanted it. The science had to be grounded 
to start this movie. It had to feel real, that telescope, the equations they were doing, all of that had to be very, very real. And even when we got far flung later in the movie, like with the Bash mission, it still at least had to have a toe in the water of like something like this maybe could happen. So uh, God bless Amy, because the amount of insane discussions she had with me, a uh, college dropout science novice, where I was saying, well, why can't the comet, which by the way, right away, she's like, it should be a comet, not an asteroid. But I like asteroids. She's like, no, no, because it would be from the Oort cloud and it would be fat, it would be this, and it looked visually better. I was like, okay, it'll be a comet. But then our next discussion was, well, I want it to be 30 kilometers wide. And she's like, we'd never be able to stop that. She's the most patient human being on planet earth because that back and forth to find that tone that you're talking about, Patrick, was hilarious. Well, I think for me, the thing that, is, that was so great about working on this movie is also the message is, is so important. You have to trust in science. It's important because science is real, it's happening. Whether we believe in it or not, science doesn't care. It's going to operate the way that it does. And we can either make decisions based on that knowledge or not. Adam gets this. He's trying to help find a way to communicate that in a way that's not a documentary, in a way that actually will resonate with people with a story attached to it that will make people, you know, that will hopefully make it relatable and funny. And I mean, you know, if you can't, you either laugh or you start crying. Right. <laughs> you know, and this movie has both. Um, I'm not gonna lie. You know, every time I see that ending, it's just, ah, it's just waterworks. But I think that's the thing that I really liked so much about the movie is the movie has a great deal of heart to it and a great deal of truth to it. And it's science fiction, but it's got heart. It's like Kate has that line when she's on the talk show where she's like, maybe it's the structure of the planet's not supposed to be fun. Maybe it's supposed to be terrifying, <laughs> you know? Um, I, I'm wondering out of all the characters, but I'll name a few. If you found yourself in a situation where you knew the earth was going to come to an end, would you say you are a Kate, a Dr. Mindy, a President Orlean, or a Quentin? Which, who do you think oh, you would be? Oh, I like that. I like that. I like to think I'd be a Kate, but I think the sad truth is I, I'd be maybe a slightly more fiery Randall, I think I would. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 it's really hard. I mean, Amy's done these shows and these interviews. I mean, the idea of looking at a camera and saying, we're all going to effing die. Like, I, I mean, I've said some things before in front of cameras, but I don't know if I quite have the chutzpah of uh, Kate DiBiaschi. Well, we had a lot of conversations about this, right? I think one thing that the movie does very well is we tried to portray, you know, if you are a scientist or if you want to effect change, let's say, how do you do it? Is it best done by saying, we're all going to die and we're going to burn it down and we're going to, you know, blah, right? You can do that or you can try to work within the system, right? So there is this debate with, with Kate and Randall of, well, okay, what do you do, right? As scientists, we can only give you information. A lot of times we're not the people who can actually in the case of the comet, you know, launch the mission that's got to bump it out of the way. We can't do that part, right? We can give you the information, but then the rest is up to many times big governments, you know, I mean, uh, so, so there's this tension of, well, what do you do if the people in charge are idiots, you know? <laughs> I mean, so do you try to work with them and educate them or do you try to go outside the system, right? And so there's a constant tension there. I think the movie, you know, we talked about this, Adam, like it isn't always a straightforward answer. Have you ever heard the story of the Cuban Missile Crisis where 
Curtis LeMay, General LeMay has convinced Kennedy to nuke Cuba and, and that's it, we're gonna do it. We're gonna drop the nukes. And Kennedy takes a beat and there's a room full of like 20, 30 people and there's people in the back of the room, like analysts. And there's the generals in the front of the room and it's a true story. And he says, is there anyone who wants to tell me anything before we do this? And way in the back of the room, a hand goes up and it's this nebbishy guy. And he says, I study Russia. Uh, my entire emphasis is the psychology of Nikita Khrushchev. And all he wants to do is not lose face. And if you're able to give him that opportunity and because of that guy raising his hand, we avoided at least some level of nuclear war. So. I think sometimes the answer is both. I think sometimes the answer is like be in the room. I wanted to go back to uh, advocacy and education because I think that's the other, we're getting so serious on my podcast. But uh, I mean, that is a big deal because it all, we, there's band-aids for these problems. And obviously a situation as depicted in the, the movie where there's uh, the pressure of time, there's not room for completely fixing structures in our society and government, but what are ways we can improve science education and advocacy or just education and literacy? You know, honestly, one of the things I think that's most important is, uh, especially for scientists, is you know, just get to know people. A lot of trust in science is built because you have to know the person, uh, not just reading something about it, but actually kind of getting to know people. And I think that's one of the things I, I I think just talking to your friends and neighbors, it doesn't have to be something big or elaborate, but honestly, just, you know, talking about what you do to the family, friends and neighbors. That is a lot of times how we build trust because we talk to people that we know from experience are, are trustworthy. So from my perspective, I think that's actually a really important thing is having those difficult conversations with the people who are in your circle. If you're a scientist, you work in some kind of a technical field, just talking to people, it makes a big difference. It really sounds simple. I also think too, I, I, Amy's by the way, totally right. I mean, they've done studies about this, that your conversations that you have with your so social spheres actually have a lot of power. It's what advertisements are trying to replicate. Commercials are trying to replicate a social sphere, but nothing is as good as the actual people that you're hanging out with. The other thing too, I think it is connected, unfortunately, is you know, when people are economically secure, well-fed, when they get sleep, uh, when they have good schools where there's not, you know, uh, asbestos coming out of the ceiling and old textbooks, uh, when all of that stuff happens, you look at America during, it's no accident that during the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, our science literacy was through the roof. That's when we had a lot of the breakthroughs and, and it's still great. So. I, I think Amy's spot on. I, I think community, communicating, sharing, making a part of our, our society and culture and the way we talk to each other, but at the same time, advocating for you know, uh, an equitable society, fair taxes, living wages. I think that stuff plays into it as well. Okay, so the name of our podcast is I'm So Obsessed. Adam, what are you currently obsessed with? I'm so obsessed right now because I watched the French show, The Bureau. I then started reading crazy amounts of nonfiction spy stuff. So I'm reading about the creation of the CIA from the 40s into the 50s in a book called The Four Quiet Americans. 
And I'm now obsessed with that period of time because I'm convinced it set America entirely on the course that we're on today. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And then Amy, what are you currently obsessed with? You know, it's funny. This is, I've been rereading an old classic. It's um, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Of course, uh, of course. Ah. Really, 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 in my opinion, one of the most brilliant stories of science fiction ever written. It's, it's, it's like a puzzle box, the whole thing. I had to read it three times to really understand what was going on because this is a story that is a combination of time travel, murder mystery, ghost story, not one, but two ghosts. Uh, you know, it's basically how would you fix the climate crisis if you had a time machine? It's, it's a whole other little kind of puzzle box of a book. And anyway, I love it. It's great. It's complete nuts. And it's, uh, it, it also cleverly uh, treats the university system the way that it deserves to be treated. So <laughs> <laughs> very important. Well, uh, speaking, I mean, of science, we talked about uh, climate science a bit, but I, I want to ask uh, both of you, but sp specifically Amy, last week, NASA um, launched um, part of its double asteroid redirection test. It's called DART mission. And I'm curious, um, as we have this film, even though it is a comet, is this insane that we're sending a spacecraft to crash into an asteroid? And who do you think is going to win, the spaceship or the asteroid? Well, let's put it this way. Uh, that spaceship, if it does its job, is toast. I mean, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting problem, right? All of this, right? And Adam, we've talked about this a lot, right? You know, so in NASA speak, when you look at spacecraft, we often plot likelihood of something happening versus consequences, and that's how you evaluate risk, right? So if something is very likely to happen, but has low consequence, eh, maybe the risk is not so bad. On the other hand, flip it around, and now you've got the asteroid problem, something that's very unlikely to happen, but the consequences can be really, really bad. And so that's a, what a, we would kind of call a medium risk, you know? So you want to do something, but we probably don't need to go to the extreme of buying asteroid insurance or carrying like really big titanium umbrellas or anything like that, you know? So, so what do you do? Well, you have a program that basically, in my opinion, the sensible thing to do is go look for the asteroids, count them, and do the really nerdy work of actually figuring out where they're going to go. Then there's the other part of it. Well, what do you do if you did find something? Okay, well, the simplest thing is to go bump into it. But that only works if you have lots and lots and lots of time, right? So this, this uh, double asteroid redirect test is an attempt to validate the technique of trying to bump it out of the way. But you still have to find the asteroids and you have to do that with enough time. And you used to be, your job used to be part of trying to find those asteroids or, or the near yeah. Earth stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I'm still working on that. Oh, so, you are? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we are still crunching away, looking for the asteroids. We're doing the very patient, we count them, one, two, <laughs> so really Patrick, you got to hear the craziest fact, which I didn't know until I did an interview with Amy. There's an asteroid out there named after Amy. It's in a safe orbit, but if it weren't in a safe orbit, it's a planet killer. <laughs> Is that correct, Amy? It's in a safe orbit. It's totally in a safe orbit. But it's a planet killer. Yeah, it's a planet it, killer. It's the same size, roughly, as the comet in the movie, basically. But uh, that's <laughs> <laughs> how crazy! I, honest to God, I did not know this until like an interview, like a week or two ago. I'm like, wait a minute. There's a there's an asteroid named after you that's the same size as the one in the movie. Uh, I that blew me away. Also, well, it's cool that there's. Yeah, an so I, named after I don't you. have an asteroid named after me. No, I definitely <laughs> do not. I mean, you have some Academy Awards, but I, I think I still take an asteroid. <laughs> <laughs> Academy Awards are cooler. 
<laughs> well, and Adam, I want to ask you a little bit a broader question. Uh, your films are ensemble films. Why do ensemble films work so well? And what's what, what about that attracts you as a writer director? You know, ensembles are great for a couple different reasons. In this movie, it was particularly great because it allowed us to mix tone. You're able to, with the different actors you put together, get a mixture of, you know, Jonah Hill, obviously great, talented, grounded, real <laughs> actor, but he has a comedy fastball. And then at the same time, you can have someone uh, who's just rock solid, grounded, salt of the earth actor like Rob Morgan. And you start putting people like that together in a scene and you, and you get these unique tones, sort of like combining instruments in music. The other thing that's great about ensemble too, when it comes to comedy, is you don't know where the laugh is coming from, which I like. I mean, that's why Will Ferrell and I, back in the day, tried to have a lot of good people in the movies and make it more ensemble, uh, was because we we love those old movies like Stripes and Caddyshack, where you don't know who's going to be funny at any given point. So, those are two big, you know, parts of it. But then also the the main part with this movie is. It's a huge movie. I mean, it's a, it's centered mostly in America, but it really is a global movie. So you just need a lot of actors. And it's a lot of like really, really good actors too. Does it ever dawn on you like, oh my goodness, I'm going to direct Meryl Streep and I have to keep Jonah Hill in line and there's Jennifer Lawrence there and, you know, this Leo DiCaprio character and then have Amy off camera talking to me about Asteroid. Like, how do you balance that? What, are, you, are you nervous? Or You always on? get a little adrenaline hit when they first show up. Like when Meryl first showed up, I'm like, holy crap, it's Meryl Streep. And then you realize, oh, no, she's just a really cool, talented person. And so it's always the first like 50 seconds where you get hit. Um, and then beyond that, I, I also know a lot of the people Jonah I've known for years. Jen Lawrence, first meeting she ever did in Hollywood was with me when she was like 17 because she loves stepbrothers. So a lot of these people I know, I just worked with Rob Morgan on a show about the 80s Lakers. So that's all cool. And then, you know, Amy knows from working with these actors, they're just, you know, like Leo's an awesome, nerdy, curious guy. And it's just a pleasure. I mean, what, Amy, what was your experience like? He just loved talking to you. Oh, he's a huge nerd. And that is a huge compliment for me. I mean, he is, he is of the nerd people. Um, so I think in another life, he probably would have been a marine biologist or something like that. But, uh, but the lucky thing is that he, he, he chose the path he did because he's really able to portray the feelings of the scientists. And I told them, you know, a lot of this is, art can really help us interpret what we're learning, right? You learn all this stuff from science, some of it's good news, some of it's not, but how do you, how do you react to it? How do you interpret what you're feeling about it? And how do you get other people to care? That's through art. And so uh -huh. there's a really important role of art to help get the word out and not just the word, but the feelings that the, those of us who really do, I mean, we study these things because we love them. You know, you don't go off and spend all those years socked away in a lab, you know, trying to get your PhD, thrashing away at a computer, years and years and years of it, because and unless you really love the subject, you just have to. I don't know if I agree, Amy. I think there's a <laughs> lot of gr greedy climate scientists out there that are rich. You go to Nobu in Hollywood, it's climate scientists everywhere. Throwing part of the, part of the big climate industry, you know?
uh, my day job is a phone reviewer. And years ago, 2018, I believe, I reviewed a phone called the Red Hydrogen One phone. It had 3D screen and all this. And this phone is all over this movie. What is going on? Why is there a Red Hydrogen One phone in your film, Adam? I, I, I'm gonna say two words to you. Our <laughs> prop master, Michael Bates. Michael Bates, I, I, I remember asking him early on, like, Michael, how are we gonna have a phone that doesn't just look like your standard phones that are out there? And he's like, I, he was always like, but you know, my friend, he's kind of an Italian uh, ex-punk rocker from uh, Southern California, he goes, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And then he comes back with that phone. He goes, this is a whole cell phone that Redcam made. They never released it, check it out. And I started playing with it. I was like, why didn't they release this? This is incredible, but it, it, apparently it's technically a little, difficult and not consumer friendly, but that was all Michael Bates. And uh, it's an incredible phone. Yeah, it looks, and it made an appearance in the last Fast and the Furious movie. So you're a good company, that's what I'm saying. But ah, you, there's, I'm, I'm going to write an article that there's this phone in this movie because I just think it's funny how this thing keeps on appearing in films. And it is, a if you do get to hold the phone, which you did, there's like a titanium version. It's got like, you know, scalloped edges and all this. But at first I'm like, oh, there's one, there's two. And then like, wow, it's all over. the. This is insane. This is great. And But then you have to say it's not that other brand that everyone uses. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a bash phone. It's a bash phone. It's a bash phone, yeah, which is clearly not bashing any And the any movie is co-produced by bash. It's partially owned by bash. <laughs> it's distributed by bash. Um, so we, we yeah, have to wrap man. up, but uh, uh, something we do on our show is a thing called pick one. I give you two things. You pick one. Doesn't mean the thing is better that you pick. Let's play pick one. So first one, pick one, Armageddon or Deep Impact? Deep Deep Impact. Yeah, deep impact. Uh, <laughs> a reflector optical telescope or a refractor optical telescope? Pick one. Reflect. Uh, refractor. Oh, <laughs> <hey>. <laughs> keep in mind, I, I was just bluffing. I don't know what I'm talking about. I, I, I found it on Wikipedia. I'm not ashamed to say that. Okay, uh, pick one. Uh, taking a ride on Jeff Bezos, Blue Origin, taking a ride on Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, or, or taking a ride on Elon Musk's SpaceX Inspiration? Pick one. Ugh. Um, that's it because that's acceptable answer too just a, 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 yeah my one. answer is uh, mine is hmm <laughs> okay cool and then the last one is uh pick one steve carell as donald rumsfeld steve carell as mark Baum, or steve carell as brick tamlin god that's that's tough man i go <laughs> steve carell as brick tamlin I was going to say Donald Rumsfeld just because. <laughs> uh, well, his Rumsfeld is so good. But I ultimately, one of my favorite all-time characters, and the reason we didn't have our president modeled after Donald Trump in the movie is I actually have said, because it would be like having Brick Tamlin in this movie. Like, that's the closest I can think of. But yeah, I, any of those three is good with me. But by a hair, I go, I love Lamb. And I love Lamp, and he's also, as we know, he worked for the Bush administration after the end credits of Anchorman. That's right. That's All right, guys, right. Amy and Adam, thank you so much. It's really been Thanks, fun. Patrick. That was fun. I want to thank Amy and Adam for chatting with me, and I want to thank you for listening. You can see Don't Look Up in theaters starting December 10th and on Netflix starting December 24th. I'm So Obsessed was created by our executive producer, Danielle Ramirez, our editor and lead producer is Sophia Fox Sowell, and this episode was produced by Rebecca Flinor. Please take a moment and subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. Also, follow the show on Twitter at I'm So Obsessed Pod. Until next time.
take care.